So as we enter 2009, it seems we all need to put our thinking caps on when it comes to stimulating, reviving and saving the world economies from the ice-cold winds of this global recession. Dr Bill Janeway says it won't be as bad as the 1930s. Does that mean... If I was thinking, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to set up a business now, I'm a young person, I'm an older person, don't do it. Well, it's very hard to do that without being able to get credit. And right now, credit is being withdrawn, even from established businesses. This is a very difficult time to start a new business. Uh, I do want to make one, uh, I want to emphasize one point, though. This is a world-class historical financial crisis, and it is having, as it should be, have been expected to have, real economic consequences. But, it is very important to underline, but this is not the lead-in to a second Great Depression, such as, in particular, the United States, much of Europe, uh, much of the developing world, the then-developing world, went through in the 1930s, and which definitely affected Britain deeply, though much less than it affected many other countries. Uh, There are several reasons why Uh, 1931, in quotation marks, which is what we're living in, does not have to become, and in my view, will not become, 1933. Uh, The first reason is simply that the scale of the public sector uh, and its ability to continue to maintain cash flows through the system, uh, both for uh, purchases of goods and services, but also for the provision of pensions, for the uh, provisions of, of other social benefits, is enormously greater, enormously more significant today than it was 75 years ago. That provides a cushion that will limit the contraction in the private sector. Uh, the second reason, as, as we've seen, today the central banks, the financial authorities, and in most cases the treasuries, the governments of the affected countries have been active and aggressive in responding to the crisis. This was not the case 75 years ago. So that is another important and positive factor. Professor Prabhu thinks necessity has always been the mother of invention. A recession is a time of difficulty and, um, uh, you know, the old saying about necessity being the mother of invention, I think necessity is the mother of innovation because not only does it force you to have new ideas but also to find innovative ways of commercializing those ideas and that's innovation. Um, so companies are forced to come up with better ways of satisfying customers and getting customers to spend their money. Uh, the best way to do that is co- just to come up with a product or a service that customers really feel they need despite the uh, constrained economic environment. And if companies can do that, then they're also assured of a better performance despite difficult times. And Dr. Shai Vaikanam says we should encourage more risk-taking. Ideally... In my mind, the risk-taking entrepreneur that is um, what we require is somebody who's got a left-hand, right-hand side of the brain, which is kind of functioning in balance. So somebody who's got the energy of uh, the entrepreneur to take the risk but is able to take stock and say, hang on a minute, will this actually work? That is the hardest part of entrepreneurship, actually, is to decide when an opportunity should be taken. Add a touch more creativity to the equation, and it seems there could be a real opportunity in the medium and long term to make the world a better place and cut our carbon emissions.
Dr Stephen Peake is a senior lecturer in environmental technology at Judge Business School. Climate leadership is about the knowledge, skills, techniques, confidence that we all of us need to imagine how do we transform ourselves from today's industrialised system based on fossil fuels and often based on deforestation into a new form of capitalism where we value uh, the environment, including the atmosphere, and we transform ourselves towards energy supply sides uh, services which are derived from renewable energy sources and also that we have completely new challenging technologies and ideas on the demand side of actually how we use energy and how we run the economy. So I suppose it's relevant at a corporate level of leadership and at a political level of leadership all over the world? Certainly relevant at the level of political leadership at the corporate level, but also at the individual. We found that if you ask people who's responsible for tackling this tremendous problem of climate change, there's a very confused mixture of answers. Typically, one group thinks the other group is responsible. So if we talk to corporate leaders, they'll say, well, I'm doing my best, but I can't do it without government also leading. If you talk to government, they'll say, we don't actually have much cash, it's the corporations. If you talk to individuals, they'll say, it's both government and corporations. The truth is that we need leadership at all levels and that means individuals corporations government the third sector the whole lot it's our joint project to redesign this world for a low carbon economy but shouldn't the financial rescue packages that countries have put in place have included these measures and what about placing more emphasis on environmental responsibilities at the level of the firm or business as part and parcel of a new world business order What I see in the global financial crisis that we face is that it is teaching us the difference between real value and false value, between what happens when we uh, put ourselves into great amounts of debts in order to live in an unsustainably financial way. And so it tells us that actually sustainability has a financial dimension to it. uh, The financial sector understands what sustainability means in a financial sense. But it reminds us that actually this current form of capitalism, uh, the current way of development, is based on ecological debts. We We are borrowing from the future and we are destroying the atmosphere, we're polluting the atmosphere, destroying the forest, the soil, the water, many of our ecosystems at a rate which is completely incompatible and unsustainable. So in fact, there's a lesson between the two and I think it just opens our minds and makes us more receptive and responsive to ideas about what does leadership mean. I mean, previously, um, a year or two ago, had we been talking about a new policy or measure that may have costed one or two billion dollars, there'd have been a great debate about whether this was a useful and, and uh, useful way of using public money in order to solve the climate problem. But now, regularly, day by day, we have. Uh, figures like one or nearly one trillion dollars being applied on top of a 700 billion dollar rescue package. And this is to save the financial sector, to shore up confidence. I think it's just going to be a matter of time before the uh, environmental leaders, climate leaders of the world will make the connection and say, well actually, for just a small fraction of these financial sums, we can insure ourselves against what is the most frightening global problem that we face, which is the terrible uh, effects of a great increase in temperature, a rapid increase in temperature. And so it makes climate policy look cheap. And yes, the public can do something to help that goes beyond the personal goals.
Instead of putting blame at the door of our business and political leaders, we could use this recession to give them permission to experiment on behalf of environmental leadership, says Dr Stephen Peake. Well, I mean, beyond each of us taking individual actions, recycling, uh, taking a bike instead of a car, etc., recycling our plastic bags, one of the most powerful things we can do as an individual citizen or consumer or member of an organisation is to give our leaders, political and corporate, give them permission to explore and experiment and take risks with business strategies and for us not to accuse them of hypocrisy when there's a difference between their stated values and their actual behaviour, but to give all leaders a chance to actually experiment because we don't know what all the solutions are, but we do know we have to learn by doing, we have to practice and that's the way forward. So by simply um, stating that you are concerned and that you are prepared uh, to give leadership a chance to explore alternatives in a classic sort of design way is a very powerful thing. And indeed, that's what the Corporate Leaders Group on Climate, which is run from the Cambridge Programme for Industry, is doing regularly. This group of corporate leaders writes to the Prime Minister or sends uh, a message to the international climate negotiations and says, hey, we, the corporate leaders require you, the political leaders, to take some action, to take some bold steps. We need regulating, we need helping, we need to do this together. And that's precisely that kind of process taking place at that high level. Innovation is Judge Business School's catchword for this recession. Hot tips include radical new alternatives, such as going back to the future and chucking out those old-fashioned pay structures and incentives we've relied on for so long. Dr Jonathan Trevor is a lecturer in human resources and organisations at Judge Business School. We overestimate our managerial capability. We overestimate, overestimate our ability to manage these very complex incentive systems and all that they require in terms of managerial time, effort, energy, uh, but also planning. Um, and as such, they often seem to do precisely the opposite of what they're, intent, what they're supposed to, what the intention is. The intention is to uh, foster a climate of positive employee relations. Uh, it is to drive performance through uh, enhanced productivity. It is to, uh, to encourage behaviours that are complementary, so uh, innovative behaviours or creativity. Um, actually, uh, more often than not, I believe that these systems um, are implemented poorly and as such, instead of getting it right, companies get it wrong. And when you're dealing with pay, you only get one chance to get it right. Uh, so you better make sure that you do. If you get it wrong, then it can all fall apart. Then I have to ask the additional question, do we know how to get it right? Or is it still a bit of a mystery? I'd say it's a total mystery, Bonnie. Um, I'd say that um, we position these things as management science, actually. It's, it's more of an art, um, and it's an art that is necessarily idiosyncratic based upon the experiences of each and every firm. And indeed, sub-divisions um, or sub-parts of the sub-organisation of, 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 of firms. Um, so from a managerial perspective, it's incredibly complex. It's a very complex system um, that often seems to go wrong, very rarely seems to go right. When it does go right, we don't, in a sense perceive that we receive all of the benefits that we we feel we should uh, pay what i'm saying in effect often seems to fall short of the promise um and yet we invest so much time and effort and i'm really asking the question given that it always seems to fall short given that often it doesn't seem to do anything at all and equally that it can produce some very negative unintended consequences or outcomes um, is pay really worth the risk uh, trying to use pay strategically can we not just take it out of the equation? 
that's a controversial view uh, because an entire industry now built around uh, helping companies uh, manage their pay strategically. And indeed, that notion of strategic pay has become the received wisdom, both in theory and also practice. So I slightly feel like I'm swimming against the tide. So could it really be done? Could we improve a company's performance in this recession by getting rid of salary incentives and going back to, well, that old notion of good people management skills? Yup, it seems we can. Barack Obama is right. The motto for good business in 2009 is yes, we can. In a sense, what companies are trying to do with pay is, is achieve exactly what you've talked about. Uh, if you, we were a small company, you and I would sit down and we'd have a good conversation. What I'd be trying to get from you, Bonnie, in terms of your behaviours would be to secure your commitment, your loyalty, your productivity. And if you weren't doing, in a sense, if you weren't working in a way that I thought was complementary to the success of the business, I could set you right. Now, can you do that with more than 500 employees? Actually, no, let's think about that. Can you do that with more than 50,000 employees operating in multiple locations throughout the world, doing different jobs uh, in different cultures, different occupations, at different levels of the organisation? Of course not. So actually, in lieu of that conversation that you and I can have in a small organisation, we use pay to elicit precisely those same outcomes. Um, And what I think I'm saying is, really, it's very limited in its capacity to do that. Or still mysterious and needs further research by you. Well, um, there's certainly a career's worth of research in it, so I'm, I'm, I, I like the direction you're going with that. But um, I think, actually, my research to date, and if I'm being very honest, would indicate that we've actually gone down a wrong track. I think because of theory and our current theorising, we've actually embarked on a, on, a, on a path down a cul-de-sac, and I think we actually need to look very long and hard as, as to why we think what we do in relation to pay and its potential to be a strategic value-adding activity, and perhaps even review whether or not um, we, we, we need to start afresh with a different perspective on the role of pay in organisations. And what about using the recession to help alleviate inequalities like the gender pay gap? All things are possible in this brave new economic world, it seems. Dr Edwina Pio is Associate Professor and Equity Coordinator at the Business School of AUT University, Auckland, New Zealand. Why do you think the gender pay gap in Britain remains so stuck? It's just gone up from 17% to 17.1%. Is there a similar story in New Zealand? Anything we can learn from the experience there? Um, I think in New Zealand also there is a gender gap. But uh, women are very vocal over there and they are trying their best to close that. The government is seriously looking at these issues. But then again, it's a grey area and one talks about uh, faith. So doing things in good faith. And I really like the idea of faith. I like the idea, uh, however old-fashioned it may be, of honouring and the dignity that one gives to people. And I think there are different matrices whereby which you measure what women are doing and what men are doing. It need not only be in terms of pay. Unfortunately, the economic indicators are given primary importance. So I also think that perhaps there's a gender gap because a lot of the accomplished women or professional women go overseas. Some of them get a bit fed up with what's happening in terms of discrimination. I think the same thing happens in New Zealand as well. It's the very opportunities that countries like America offer in terms of immigrant labour that makes its economy so successful. In a recession, we need to remain as open in our thinking. Do you think the global economic downturn is going to have an adverse effect on the employment prospects of migrant women today? 
I think yes, primarily because they are a vulnerable section of society by far and large. If you look at, for example, the new laws of the EU in terms of mobility, you have a lot of people from countries like, let's say, Poland, for example, coming to the UK. And uh, however qualified they may be, they tend to work in the lower end of the economic labor market. Uh, but, you know, they would definitely move up and they're the vulnerable section who'd get axed. But you might say a migrant worker comes in with the attitude, you've got to keep moving. Uh, you've got to keep making your own business opportunities. That creates a dynamism, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But I would like to see that dynamism not solely being driven by the individual, but also being driven by society, by the embeddedness of political structures, by the embeddedness of institutional and organizational norms that don't see migrants as a drain on the economy, but see migrants as contributing. When they're entrepreneurial, they create jobs for themselves as well as for others. Mm. So it seems Judge Business School is telling us this global recession offers opportunities as well as the bad news. Let's pay a visit to China and see what we can do to emulate its success. Peter Williamson is the visiting professor of international management at Judge Business School. He says although China is suffering and its growth rate will be cut back, the economic news is not as bad as that for the Western economies. I think everybody has been affected because we're now living in a highly interconnected world. So this idea that people had that decoupling of some parts of the world might happen, uh, I think was just dreaming. We, there are knock-on effects uh, everywhere and we see this all around us. On the other hand, I think we have to... Uh, be quite clear that China is in a very different position from the UK as it enters this recession. Firstly, it has a high savings rate. It's sitting on around two trillion US dollars of foreign exchange assets. And uh, on a high, on the other hand, we have uh, in the UK uh, high deficits, uh, both in the government, high borrowing. So. Although everybody is going to be affected, I think we're likely to see a growth rate in China somewhere still around 7% a year versus actually shrinking here and home in the UK. So what can we in the West do to emulate that business success? Should we pile them high and sell them cheap and create those dragon companies that Professor Williamson tells us about? Well, here we go again. Yes, we can. I think the first thing to uh, think about is how to bring high technology or new technology more quickly to the mass market where you can build volume. So not to see it as purely, well, let's put the new technology into a niche business, uh, into a niche segment at the high end, but how to bring it more quickly into the volume part of the market. And that's certainly what Chinese companies have done, the better Chinese companies have done lots of industries, uh, taken new technology and made it affordable to many people. So I think that's a lesson that uh, Western companies need to learn. And it's interesting that many Western companies actually know that from their subsidiaries inside China and India, but not always does the headquarters listen to those lessons. And I think it's about time we took notice of what our subsidiaries in the developing world might have to teach us. So if we're looking at value-for-money strategies during the recession, that could mean more creativity, more innovation into the Western business model. 
I think that's right. We often think of innovation and creativity as more bells and whistles, more functionality, fancy technology. But maybe in this recession we have to turn our creativity to how do we change the business model to deliver more value to money, for money, uh, to bring high technology to the mass market more quickly, to give customers more choice without charging them a huge price premium, and to do something else that the Chinese companies have done, and that is to say, is us a niche market uh, only small with few customers because nobody really wants this product or because the price is so high that people are put off. So you see a number of different uh, products, be they portable DVD players or uh, refrigerators for storing wine, that the Chinese have said, you think it's a niche market with only a few customers, but we think we can turn this into a volume mass market if we change the value-for-money equation. Companies like Kellogg's and Procter & Gamble grew out of the last Great Depression. Value-for-money strategies are the key to success. Our natural reaction is to uh, batten down the hatches, to cut back, and so forth. But uh, the interesting piece of history here that some of the companies that we know uh, well today like Kellogg's or Procter & Gamble, they actually rose to prominence and dominance in their market during the Great Depression. And the way they were able to do that was by this strategy of finding ways to deliver value to money, value for money, to the mass market. It's value for money strategies. This is something the West can look to emulate from China. I think so. Again, as I mentioned, uh, thinking about new technology in terms of its mass market potential, not just its uh, uh, potential at the top end is one of those. And what you see also is many of the successful Chinese companies have looked at the uh, product and said, how can we find innovative ways to make it more cheaply? A good example is the lithium-ion batteries that are in many of things from portable telephones to uh, the modern electric cars. Now, they were prohibitively expensive a few years ago, and a Chinese company, BYD, looked at them and said, how can we make them using cheaper materials? And they learned to do something else interesting. They learned to make them at ambient temperature, and that meant they didn't have to build an expensive dry room plant to build these things. They took the cost of them down from $40 each to just $12, and that opened up a mass market. So I think it's that kind of creative thinking about cost that we have to focus on in this recessionary period. There is a consensus on the recession coming from academics at Judge Business School, and that is creativity, risk-taking, innovation, and reaching out to the rest of the world, rather than heaving up those drawbridges, is the way to get countries and firms out of the present economic decline. Professor Williamson sums it up for the rest. So do you think that the Western economies may come out of the recessionary period with their own version of the Chinese dragon 
low-cost companies? I think that will happen. Uh, I think some companies probably will see that opportunity uh, more significantly than others, but that's what we should be looking out for because what you typically find at the end of a recession is that some of the leaders in the industry were toppled off their perches and some other people came up. And the distinction between those two groups of companies is generally about whether or not they found ways to creatively reduce costs and deliver more value for money for their customers. Oh, yes, we can. Happy New Year and a prosperous 2009 from Judge Business School.